Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months, including UKO and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and IonRT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensys.co.uk. multi-award-winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So I am so excited to announce this is our first of our AI podcast series. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Norman Jock Anderson. Hi everyone. This artificial intelligence podcast series is the outcome of a collaboration between the Artificial Intelligence Advisory Group of the Society College of Radiographers and Radchat. Artificial intelligence is already in our lives, both personally and professionally, and we need to be aware of it and make the best use of it in a safe way. As professionals, we also have a responsibility to engage with it for the benefit of our patients. There'll be many future podcasts, and we'll try to make it multidisciplinary and keep it relevant to both patients and professionals. Therefore, we want to ask you, our audience, what you want to learn about AI so that we can plan future episodes accordingly. So please do get in touch via social media or email. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Christina Malametanu and also Dr. Amrita Kumar. So welcome both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Joan. Hi, Naman. Hi, Amrita. Um, I am uh, the director of the postgraduate program at City University of London for Radiography. So I'm in charge of the masters and the PhD students there, but also in uh, in other um, in other things, I'm working as the chair of the AI advisory group, the Society and College of Radiographers, uh, and I'm the current chair of the research um, specialist committee of the EFRS and a board member of the European Society of Medical Imaging Informatics. So there's a lot of AI currently happening in terms of policy and in terms of our teaching as well as our research. We do also have the first AI course for radiographers 
in the UK and indeed in the EMEA region at postgraduate and CPT level. So I am Dr. Amrita Kumar. I'm a consultant radiologist at Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust. I'm also the AI clinical lead there and uh, I've been a consultant now for 10 years and my journey into AI most probably started five years ago through a workforce challenge that we were trying to address. Um, but one of my other hats is that with the work that we've been doing on implementation level within the NHS clinical pathways, I've also been appointed as the chair of the AI and innovation committee at the British Institute of Radiology, where we overlook to see because it's a multi-collaborative approach, which is where I met Christina and we've tried to include all um, end users in the imaging clinical pathway to collaborate together to address some of the challenges when it comes to implementing AI in the um, clinical pathway. So thank you very much for having me here. So Christina, lots of people will know artificial intelligence from the movies like Terminator, things like that. Can you explain to us in a medical perspective, what is AI? Thank you so much, Naman. Unfortunately, AI takes more negative publicity than positive in recent days, not just because of these movies, but also because of Chad GPT. Everyone speaks about that. So I would like to say that AI, artificial intelligence, is a very simple tool that is very powerful that imitates human decision making based on some predictions from, from big data. So basically, it learns how to make a decision based on big data. Uh, for me, when I present the terminology to my students, I say to them that AI is about getting maths into medicine and putting medicine into boxes, which we haven't done before. Uh, medicines, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Amrita is going to speak about the art and science of medicine, but I do think that it just helps us standardize some things we haven't done before. And it holds enormous processing power, enormous memory, to recall cases and use that memory and knowledge to inform decisions in the future. So it's about predictions based on already acquired data. That's that's perhaps more than one definition here, but I tried to um, to give you the, the gist of what AI is really. And there are so many other words we use interchangeably with AI, like machine learning, deep learning, and other ways of learning, but I think they all belong to the wider family of AI, artificial intelligence. Have you found a way to stop your students putting their uh, coursework and things like that through ChatGPT yet? This is a very good question. I am an early adopter and I believe in innovation. So actually I don't feel at all threatened by AI as a technology because I do think that it's a huge opportunity to reimagine the way we do our healthcare and to, um, you know, to stop all these inequalities when it comes to accessibility, equity and diversity. Uh, so I see it as a very powerful and very useful tool. What we need to be doing more, and we do it now, uh, with the help of all of our professional bodies here, you know, BIR, um, Society and College, EFRS, and, and many more in the UK and abroad, is to control that enormous power, to govern it, and to ensure we have some you know safety backups so it doesn't end up in the wrong hands or it's not used up in the wrong way so when it comes to chat gpt i want my, my students to use it i don't want them to be afraid of new technology but i want them to know that 
the same uh, rules apply when it comes to plagiarism. <laughs> so there are ways to uh, to ensure that we know what they've used, how they've used it, and there are ways to control for that. I just want them to find the opportunity to reflect from the outcomes that come out of ChatGPT and to, to, to answer perhaps a question that might come after that, I inputted my name on ChatGPT. So I'm a radiographer, and ChatGPT said I am a medical physicist. So this tells you how clever or not ChatGPT can be. So let's, let's keep our hopes high and our, you know, and our antennas higher to ensure that it's used in the right way and it doesn't create any wrong information. I actually used chat gbt to ask what questions should i ask experts in ai which i thought was pretty ironic when i came to look at this podcast episode um and there were some great questions so it could definitely be utilized um and rita i'm really keen to understand how is it currently being used within your field of practice so uh, joe um Right now, the potential of AI, especially when it's applied in healthcare, and most of which is right now diverted to uh, the radiology speciality, primarily because in radiology, we actually hold everything in DICOM files, which are already digitized. So it makes for a very natural process to begin there. Um, what we've seen is a lot of companies come out and publish reports about the usability, the accuracy, the sensitivity and specificity of various AI softwares when it comes to different parts of the imaging um, sort of pathway. Uh, you've got modality, uh, you've got AI technologies for chest x-rays, for CT, for MRI, for patient sort of clinic management systems. and. All of the evidence right now has been carried out very much in the research setting. So depending on the areas that you're interested in, what I've seen personally, the shift and the narrative has changed that we understand what the potential of AI is, especially when it comes to using the different technologies to address different parts of the clinical pathway, either for better patient outcomes or for um, system efficiencies or actually for cost savings in some examples. We've shifted towards trying to operationalize some of these so that what we found in research has to match when we actually try to implement in real life setting. And Unfortunately, I can't tell you that it's one of those cases where it's like buying a video game software. That you just buy it uh, in a shop, bring it back, plug it into your computer system and everything works. There's an entire implementation piece that has to go around introducing AI into the clinical field, which differs from other sectors when you use it in, say, defense or use it in telecommunications. And that's primarily coming down to sort of not just the tech. In fact, I'd argue the tech is... The AI tech itself is most really the last thing we look at. The first thing is really the people and the operational processes. So getting all the resourcing right so that the relevant stakeholders come together that have the different domain expertise that are required to implement AI in and then make sure that the appropriate backing financially is there and that the appropriate governance for the safety uh, and uh, safe operating of these uh, softwares are there is where the shift has basically turned to. So I am one of the clinicians leading that sort of change at NHS clinical level where we're bringing something in and we're seeing how does it actually, what is needed to operationalize it and put the appropriate governance around it. And then look really what the value metrics are. Because interestingly, the research again, always looks at the area under the curve 
and the sensitivity and the specificity. But really, if you were to ask, you know, radiographers, radiologists and patients, that's not really what they, they won't be able to translate that into the clinical setting. It has to, if it's affecting the initial diagnostic pathway, we have to take the research findings and now match it against the value metrics of either increased turnaround time for certain reporting metrics, which leads possibly to faster diagnosis of urgent findings or cancer diagnosis and therefore faster treatment, better treatment. So the scope is immense, it's just making that transition from research to real life practice. How long does it take to implement something like this? So you've seen it in research to say for chest x-rays, you know it works and then trying it out with a cohort. How long does it take from you know finishing writing up the research into going into clinical practice? Um, that's a very interesting question and actually that's what we're all undertaking right now. So there is an element of ac the operationalization for me is actually the pre-deployment, then the actual deployment and then the post-deployment. So the pre-deployment is the all getting all the data governance, the digital and IT infrastructure and the appropriate domain expertise for the clinical pathway in place. and. Right now, we actually have quite a few AI studies in our portfolio right now in this stage when we're looking at live deployment and evaluation. And what we found that the initial setup when we were learning in the first few took a lot longer. Some took anywhere between six to nine months, whereas obviously as we form the structure and governance around how to set up, it has sped it up so that I find that generally I will give myself a two to three month margin just for the setup phase prior to deployment. The deployment is the second stage for me. That's when the IT integration has happened. And because we're trying to find where the true value lies, the way we've adopted it is that we've gone for a three phase approach. The first phase being doing a quick sort of retrospective study um, parallel to see and adjust the operating points of the AI technology to make sure depending on what it is recalling. And again, here I will add that when I'm talking about AI technologies, I am talking about pixelated AI technology. Uh, if you're looking at a particular modality, so say for example, two of, uh, one of our um, studies is right now for chest X-ray um, and AI's ability to triage away normal chest X-rays. So that has to be that has been trained on certain generalizable data, we have to make sure that the research findings at the very basic level when introduced into a new center with a specific population set representing a very demographic, representing different um, tech vendors for say the chest x-ray, that the initial operating points are reflective of our current practice. So that retrospective bit gives us the sort of adjustment period to make sure that this AI tech can perform at the level we're expecting it to perform. And once we make the adjustments in that retrospective phase, we then move on to a prospective phase where we actually do a silent evaluation. So we still don't let it affect our clinical system. We monitor it alongside our existing clinical pathway. And then we put the resources at the back to track that prospectively, if this was to <clears throat> align with the current clinical pathway, all the safety mechanisms were there because we are using all of these AI tech as a diagnostic aid 
these aren't autonomous. We do not have the regulations in place for autonomous use, but there's still huge value to use AI technology to triage and prioritize for us to aid in that efficiency and better patient outcome piece. And then the third will be, once we get there, we're not quite there yet, we're still in the silent evaluation um, phase for all our studies at our NHS Trust, we move on to active deployment into the clinical path pathway. I think you've highlighted perfectly, Amrita, that it isn't just a case of plugging an AI um, piece of software and then patients are like, oh my gosh, these, these AI pieces of software are taking over healthcare. But it is ultimately what people associate, isn't it, with AI in terms of jobs are going to be lost, maybe, um, you know, software programs are going to take over things. Think, think you know, I, I know uh, regions and research, there's a lot of anticipation around accessing data and how our data can be accessed. From a patient's perspective, have you kind of done any focus groups with patients about their perceptions of, of AI and maybe the impact that that might have on the work that you're doing? So we thank you for that, Joe. So on multiple levels, absolutely. Patients are a very important end user of the AI technology in the clinical pathway. So I know that the companies we work with have patient groups so that they have collaborated together to see a, that it was a useful technology and that it would be acceptable. One of the studies we're doing is a national study actually looking at the use of AI for mammogram breast screening recall. And again, because uh, breast screening um, is a very special pathway that's quite carefully regulated and quality assured in this country and also has two consultants who report. They can be two consultant radiologists, they can be consultant radiographers. So the beauty of that particular pathway is that there are two people in the reporting line. So that if one was to think about how AI could augment or assist in that pathway, one could consider a niche role for it as a second reader in certain uh, spheres, especially if uh, two readers are thinking about it as normal. So patients have been informed in our trust as well. So when we're doing this, we actually have posters showing that this study is happening. Uh, we are not collecting data from anybody, but we are seeing how it runs in the background so that we can formulate the sort of implementation framework and safety governance structures at this point so that we can one day look towards how this can help and what I always tell, because it's very important to bear that patients need to be kept along and informed as to why we're doing it. The reality is that the demands on healthcare has been increasing year on year. And radiology, as we all know, plays a very pivotal role in the diagnosis and management across all disease spectrums. So with this demand growing, this obviously compounded by the fact that we do have a huge workforce crisis amongst radiographers, amongst radiologists and other healthcare professions, this has a very negative impact on the timeliness of reporting. So when we have so many x-rays, CTs and MRIs, the current practice is to really report the oldest first and then work our way up. But if you can imagine that in some cases, centers may have a backlog of up to a thousand scans. And the reality is you don't know if that first scan has a suspected abnormal finding or scan number 1000 and every different center's workforce requirement is different. So some centers may complete that thousand scans in two to four weeks. Others may take six to 10 weeks. So you've automatically increased the detection of the abnormal finding at the end of that pile. 
AI has the potential to really prioritize the, any suspected abnormal findings and bring it to the front of the pile so that no matter how potentially constrained you are as far as workforce is concerned, at least you try to address the suspected abnormal scans in the first instance. Not only does this make it more efficient, but it means that you'll find abnormalities faster than you would have previously and that will result in faster cancer diagnosis or treatment of urgent findings. Amrita, that obviously sounds very inspiring for the future. Slightly controversial question back to you. If we have a workforce issue at the moment, how quickly can things like this be implemented? Because while AI can learn quickly, what happens if there's not enough people to implement this in the workplace? Newman, that's a really, really good question, actually, because that's most probably where we are at right now in that the research is there. There is enough products that could have a very positive impact when it comes to looking at better patient outcomes, system efficiencies and possible cost savings. The thing is that translation piece, it's OK for one or two centers doing it, but really you need the scalability that to actually maximize on the positive impacts, a lot of us have to be doing it. So there has to be a coordination with the policymakers, with government and appropriate funding so that we can begin this sort of implementation um, uh, journey together because everybody has to go through this implementation to set up the resources, people and safety governance structures. So the faster we can scale up, uh, the better. Now, again, on a positive note, I have seen a shift, that there is now a shift so that even the policymakers and government bodies are looking towards AI and its potential in easing the workforce crisis. So I know that obviously in the last few years, as we're all aware, uh, NHS um, AI Labs uh, brought out the NHS England AI Awards, which was trying to show at uh, certain stage levels of how to implement uh, the different AI technologies that had shown research value potential. So that work is continuing and my understanding is now policy is being amended so that the government agencies have noted that we do know, we, we do have to together work with AI to put the relevant structures into clinical pathways and actually implement it and then look to see how it really provides value on a scalable um, level. So really look towards regional escalation of that scalability. So it is on the journey towards trying to have maximum impact. My understanding is that for imaging products, they will try to come in through the imaging networks because each network may service anywhere between six to 12 NHS trusts and then set up the structure so that that structure can help all the NHS trusts have the appropriate leadership and the governance structures so that we can safely and effectively implement AI. Uh, at a more scalable level. Amrita, is there an issue around utilising different software technologies? Um, I'm just thinking about, you know, if one trust decides to invest in one AI piece of software versus another trust, you know, we always see that integrated care barriers within care pathways often largely just within workforce with patients moving and then their, their records not being able to be transferred between different geographies. Do we see this happening with AI? You know, is there the ability to connect with lots of different softwares across different trusts and regions within the country? So 
you know, that's what we've actually seen in our practice is that because we've done, we are on a journey of evaluating multiple AI products, we know that it's actually very, a lot of resources has to be put in to implement, especially from the digital infrastructure side, whether it's in cloud or servers, to individually onboard different companies. Because you can appreciate even in a radiology department, the pediatric radiologist may have very different needs to the gynae ultrasonographer who will want a different AI to help them. So even in one specialty, you may need up to 20 different technologies. And my own opinion is, and where the direction of travel seems to have gone for me, is that to make that easier, one will need to have a, an AI platform that integrates with our PAX machine, which hosts multiple AI technologies, because the reality is different trusts will have different needs. And the choice of which technology they would like to address first, and there's lots of choices even within one particular clinical pathway, that will firmly lie with the trust. But at least the deployment piece can be um, already in place, and that is something that could could be carried out at a more regional or national level. I'm always, on a personal note, apprehensive when you try to take anything national because we know how difficult that is. But I think at a regional level, because different regions are coordinated with now with ICBs forming, there is some sort of uniformity in processes and a different sort of alignment in priorities. You could have AI platforms serving a particular region and then the decision for which technology lies firmly with the NHS Trust and which problems they're trying to solve um, and their, their uh, approach to it, really. But at least the platform gives them access to everything. Then it's just a matter of seeing which one suits their clinical needs. How much is all this going to cost? It is expensive, but not as expensive as you think. One isn't talking in hundreds of thousands when I'm talking about an individual hospital, of course, once you scale it, it is going to be, which is why there is a need for that alignment with policymakers and government that to initially set this an aid in implementation, funding will need to be arranged regionally or nationally. But as I said, there seems to be engagement at the right level with, the, with, with bodies like the AI, National AI Lab, where they are looking to see how funding could potentially come in so that there could be regional implementations of such solutions. And Christina, how is this going to impact radiographers and radiography as a whole? Thank you, Naman. I think at the beginning of AI coming into, into the medical imaging and radiotherapy field, it was always at the beginning quite dominated by discussions and ra around radiology and uh, as a decision support tool. And this remains a very hot and important topic, like uh, Amrita explained, for both the radiologists and for those radiographers who are reporting radiographers. But there are so many other areas of our practice that are, aren't being impacted um, by, um, by AI. So this might relate, for instance, to um, workflow and appointments and for all the screening programs, but also for all the... Uh, you know, for all the programs when it comes to medical imaging and radiotherapy, we need to be able to manage the workflows more so now after COVID-19 and, and the backlog of examinations and appointments for treatments. So AI can be used to minimize the non-shows in these programs and to improve the throughput um, in the departments of radiotherapy and medical imaging radiology. There's also a huge input of AI when it comes to patient safety 
there are some really amazing AI tools that reduce the radiation dose for diagnostic examinations while maintaining image quality, which is amazing, and can revolutionize, for instance, low-dose lung cancer screening, another type of screening using uh, computer tomography. But also, it can be used um, in um, preserving uh, and you know at-risk organs during treatment planning, and this is perhaps one of the most high-spec hot topics when it comes to radiotherapy at the moment. Um, there are also many things about MRI safety checks, request vetting, and ID confirmation before the scan that AI can facilitate, but many of these things still remain at experimental and conceptual um, phase. The majority of the AI um, applications in radiography relate to image quality optimization and post-processing, so how we acquire the data, how we take out all the artifacts and we improve image quality, how we post-process to give some meaningful results. And this can apply to more specialties beyond radiology, like cardiology, for instance, or, or other disciplines like obstetrics. Um, and how do we register the images? Some of these times, um, some of these tasks are being undertaken by radiographers historically or by some registrars. And now they're going to be facilitated and enabled by AI tools. Uh, and of course, patient care, things like patient positioning. Uh, some studies, some early studies in computer tomography have shown that AI can consistently position patients more accurately uh, when it comes to comparing those with um, with radiographers. So they can position the patients in the isocenter of the scanner and it can produce more reliable and consistent results, particularly um, related to follow-up examinations and longitudinal studies. One thing that I think is really, one aspect is really important to consider when it comes to AI implementation is that we are working with a workforce that is really exhausted after COVID-19, and we haven't really paid attention to that. That's why our professions are bleeding of all the bright minds, of all the people who have probably have had enough over the last three years. And I do think that AI can have a huge application in staff well-being if we want to honor and support our workforce. And this might relate to, for instance, optimizing the RODAS based on staff, you know, their lives, their experiences, their needs, um, and you know, optimize it in, an, in a way that works for the department and ensures work-life balance for our clinical staff, but also for our academic staff. So I think this is an application we need to be looking more into for the future. One, one thing that is really important when it comes to AI applications, like Amrita said, is that the most important end user is the patient. So in all of these things, we need to be able and, and seek to have feedback from practitioners, but also from patients in a way that we co-construct the AI tools and we don't do them for them without them, for the patients without the patients, because the cost of the afterthought, so doing something and then realizing actually it's not user-friendly, it's not patient-friendly, that cost is going to be huge for companies, for developers, for the NHS. So we have to involve the patients early on, at the, on the early stages of the conceptualization of the inception of any AI tool. And I know that this is happening increasingly well now. So Amrita, what ethical considerations are needed with respect to artificial intelligence? 
from a cl clinical point of view, there are multiple ethical considerations. For me, the, one of the things that I always look for is the generalizability and the transparency uh, alongside any biases that one has to consider. By generalizability, I mean that it, when AI gets trained at the development stage, one does have to look to see that it, ha it is representative of the various different um, demographics. We can't have data that's really been trained on one um, subset of the population and expect to work on everybody because we know from uh, research that it doesn't apply. So then you may automatically have a very negative impact on a different cohort that you haven't anticipated. But this sort of information is usually published and is very important to look at when you look at how different companies actually trained and then validated their data set. The transparency is really is towards the explainability of the AI algorithm. It's something Christina knows a lot more than me, so I may well leave that one to her. But from a clinical point of view, it's really how the AI tech is making decisions because there has to be a way and that transparency for the company to show it to the clinicians and the healthcare workers involved in that clinical pathway is what I look for. And it's quite an important learning bit, especially when you're setting up in the first phase retrospective study. The biases one has to be aware of. There are lots of biases, making sure that the biases for even just as simple as an automation bias, that when you actually start using the AI, research has shown that depending on the seniority of the individual using it, the less senior you are, so the more newly qualified as a consultant you are, the more dependent you become on the tech, whether it's right or wrong. So there are lots of ethical considerations, um, but I will pass over to Christina to most really add a bit more depth to that. Thank you, Amrita, and thank you, Joe, for the excellent question. I think when it comes to transparency, uh, Amrita touched upon some really important things. I also think that, and I know that very often when it comes to the new AI startups, but also to the established manufacturers, they do introduce AI without always notifying the clients. And this can be problematic, particularly if you look at different trends or different aspects of the images, including artifacts or new findings, and you don't know how this has occurred. So there is a responsibility for the manufacturers to notify always the, the end users if they have introduced some AI technology. And also there is a responsibility for them to make it accessible and, and open to uh, evaluation. Um, and not keep the code to themselves because this um, affects people's lives in so many different ways. So we need to be able to evaluate, suggest solutions, escalate, you know. So it, there has to be a bit more openness and transparency, like Amrita said, which helps explainability. Two more things when it comes to ethics, if I can add to Amrita's very important list. One is consent how we use the data, because AI feeds on data. It's like a, a little beast that eats data and learns through that and then spits out results and predictions. So I think there has been a lot of negative publicity with some different AI companies that they use patient data without the proper consent. Therefore, it's really important to ensure that we have the patient consent for their use of data. And if their data is used more than once for different projects, they need to know, they need to have the trail of where their data is being used and why. And they need to be able to say, no, I don't want my data to go for that specific study in the same way that they have their own patient pathway. That's one, informed consent. And the other one is about accountability 
and responsibility in the case of erroneous use or erroneous interpretation. I will say my bit, but here I would like perhaps Amrita to come in because of, of her clinical, you know, clinician, clinical practitioner responsibility as a radiologist, uh, because, you know, the things that radiologists are doing have also very clear impact on the patient pathways, uh, and this is important. So I will, take my, I will say my bit, and I will hopefully um, ask Amrita to come and chip in if she would like at the end on that. So when it comes to responsibility, there is there are a lot of questions. Who is responsible when AI technology is being used erroneously, so without you know, appropriate um, governance or uh, outside of its remit, of its intended use, uh, and it produces wrong results. So there are different agents here. So one is the AI developers. So have they done something wrong? There is also the the institution. It might be a hospital, it might be an NHS hospital, it might be another clinical setting, a private setting. It might be a research institute. And also the human you know, agents, the ones who are using the, the software or the, you know, the AI tool, however you would like to call it. So this might be the radiologists when it comes to a decision support tool or the radiographers for all the other aspects, safety, positioning, uh, patient care and image quality that we have discussed and, and, and treatment quality as well. So who is responsible when this happens? And I don't think the legal framework is there yet. There are some discussions that, you know, everyone is responsible for that. Uh, but what level of responsibility, I don't think it's quite clear yet. Uh, Amrit, I don't know if you have anything to add to that in terms of accountability and responsibility. Thank you. Thank you for that, Christina. I think the only thing I'd add, Christina, because you've summed it up beautifully, is that as far as the pixelated AI technologies that radiologists use, they are very much being used as a diagnostic aid. Currently, in its very early phase of implementation, we're actually using it to triage and prioritize. So at all points, there is a consultant who is reviewing and whose final decision. We're just using the AI technology to reprioritize the workflow. Now, saying that, one has to be aware that in that reprioritization, is there a proportion of patients that maybe the AI technology doesn't detect and therefore that patient um, who would have maybe seen in a different order had the AI technology not been applied is now possibly lower down the list than they would have been if the AI technology was applied. Now that's really a theoretical risk but I in my opinion, right now with the backlog and the current state of delays, uh, in my opinion, it still outweighs the theoretical risk that exists. But I can't deny that the theoretical risk doesn't exist. Now, the AI tech piece of it, as far as regulations and as intended use is concerned, for which it has a CE marking and the appropriate notified body um, that regulates it, my understanding is so long as the AI company meets all the regulatory needs as per the CE marking, and if it does not, us as users have to report it to the notified user, there is that responsibility that lies with the software. But for the clinical decision making, in my opinion, it's still the consultant um, who has to make the overall call of whether that particular scan is normal or abnormal. The AI technology is a tool to help them, not to make it for them.
I'm really keen to understand, how's AI being perceived by radiologists and Rita? Is it something that people are really excited about? Is there apprehension? You know, if you were to talk to your peers, what's the general consensus around the use of AI? I think there's a fairly big mix, I'll be honest, Joe. And obviously you have to appreciate that there is a bias in my, um, in my answer in that I would most probably put myself in the extreme pro end of the spectrum. And therefore, when you meet other like-minded people like Christina, like other colleagues undertaking similar work in different NHS trusts and conferences, we are most really one end of the spectrum. But it's not that it's an extreme end, it's just that we really know what the potential is. But when you know what the potential is, you now are in a very good position to see, well, how do we make this work? Because we know the benefit it can have on radiologists, radiographers, patients, the hospital, at trust level, at regional level, it's really the how we make it work and that we make it work as safely and effectively as what our clinical structures are set up to handle. But there are a lot of people, and not just colleagues, everybody, radiographers, our healthcare workers in the clinical setting, that you have to appreciate that the baseline knowledge may not be there of exactly what the um, what exactly AI is. And to your point previously, some of it may well be thinking it's a Terminator-like thing that's coming in autonomously and will start making decisions left, right, and center, whereas we know that's not the case. It's baby steps where we're trying to really bring it in to triage and prioritize and really help us at our current needs um, to help with efficiencies, burnout, just coping with our current demand. So I have a lot of colleagues who most probably my enthusiasm and energy for it can rub off on. There's some that it still won't rub off on. So I, I find that the way to address this, because it's reality, one of the challenges of real life deployment is that not everybody is bought in and the end users do have to be bought in. So as one of the key roles for the chair of the AI committee at the British Institute of Radiology to address this, we know a large component of it is education of all the various bits of AI for all healthcare workers, not just us in imaging, but everybody has to know. I always quote Joe that the same way you, me, Christina, and Newman need to know research, even though we do it in different capacities, it's not that we have to know in detail about every research aspect, but all of us do have to know the principles of research, why it's important, how to critically appraise papers, because that lets us do our day job better when we're looking at one treatment option compared to another treatment option. A similar thought process applies to AI, that there has to be a minimum baseline knowledge and principle of AI that every healthcare worker knows, because then they won't be scared of it. If something is not working, it's absolutely right to question why it's not working and to know who to go to, to know how it'll be solved. Um, and I think education is what we do. So Christina has been part of a team alongside me and other members of the um, special interest group at the British Institute of Radiology. And we have worked alongside Health Education England to actually come up with an entire series addressing the entire spectrum of AI from development to uh, governance, to regulation, to implementation and outcomes of AI. And it is freely available to all healthcare workers because it's been funded by HEE for it. If you go to the British Institute Radiology website where we've released 
three sets of the modules and we continue to release more as they're getting ready. So we hope that educating healthcare workers will help them understand all the different pieces to it because there are different pieces to it, but it'll address the concerns or the apprehension people will have so they, they can be, they can not embrace it, but be aware of why we're doing it and the safety mechanisms that do go at the back of it. With respect to education, are there any publications at the moment, Christina, that you're both involved with? Yes, I think thank you very much for that, Naman. So um, obviously the BIR has done a great job with HEE. Um, also, before I go into the publications, the Society and College of Radiographers will be releasing some webinars in the coming September when it comes to AI with radiographers discussing within our context. I mean, the BIR, great work because it's multidisciplinary, but the Society and College would like to bring it down a bit more to radiography related. There are many courses, and this is one of our publications joined with Amrita and the multidisciplinary team of computer scientists, psychologists, radiologists, radiographers, and, and public health experts, which is an evaluation of our postgraduate AI course at City, which takes place over a week in November, and it's in person with a lot of hands-on workshops. And Amrita has very kindly, she's very kindly teaching there every year. Thank you so much for that, Amrita. And many other people from medical imaging and radiotherapy in the UK. And there are also other publications we are working with Amrita and there will be a few coming in the next two or three months um, on um, education and training as a sum up what is happening in Europe for radiography, radiology and medical imaging. So what is available for AI training and education as well as uh, what can we do to create the conditions for responsible AI. So this means about governance of AI, about ethical use of AI. Um, so there are many things that will be coming up, but I'm, I'm sure that we will get the chance to distribute those in the coming two or three months when they will be ready. Some of those are already accepted and we just make some final you know, corrective movements there. Uh, and the one that I said about AI education, the evaluation of our course at City has been published at Insights into Imaging uh, early this year. In, I think it was February 2023. So it's freely available for everyone to have a look at. And hopefully other educators can have a look at the content and the formatting and they can decide what is good for their context and their local practice. So I could probably talk about this all day because it's so interesting. Um, but we try to keep to 45 minutes, largely because we know that's the average commute time. Um, but before we go and we start to kind of do our summaries, I need to ask you all a question. Naman, I'm going to start with you. If you had some AI that would help you in your day-to-day -day life, what would you want it to help with? Um, I think managing my four email addresses. That's what I need. A virtual PA. Christina, what would yours be? Well, I don't know where to start from, but if I had one option, I would probably say, could it do the housework? <laughs> so I can focus on my kids and all the uh, academic and research aspects. That would be really great, I think. Amrita? I was going to say that, Naman, um, what you're really looking at is most really for a chat GPT LLM model that brings together all four of your email addresses. I'm sure that's not too far off, you know. It'll just amalgamate it and prioritize it for you but for me you know what I'm going to be geeky I'm going to say because it's I suppose my single focus is that 
my dream would come true at work if all our PAC systems had live platforms so that the urgent stuff came first and then we'd get through it and all our important cases were seen and done and dusted within a week or two of each other and then we, depending on our workforce, have a look at the normal um, in due course. But I'd, I'd love it for it to be here just so that it could escalate the abnormal and findings that would have huge impact in my work. No, oh, the perfect answer, Amrita, I love it. So um, we always finish all of our podcast episodes with top tips. So Christina, I'm going to come to you first. For anyone listening, whether it's patients, healthcare training students, healthcare professionals, what, what top tips would you give them around AI? One thing I would like to say is to not be afraid of it. Uh, it's not going to take anyone's jobs, but we have to reinvent ourselves because things are moving forward. So to do so, we need to be trained appropriately when it comes to AI, uh, because this will help us understand how we can fit into into the digital future and how we can uh, contribute to that future as well. So it's not only about having a secure job, it's about how we can be the agents of change for the future. Without knowledge, we cannot do that. And the other thing I would like to say that the future of AI is in our hands. So when it comes to responsible AI, it's not only my responsibility, it's everyone's because it's going to affect everyone's life. So we need to have more advocacy and engagement with it. Um, and of course, um, you know, um, podcasts and discussions like this one help, you know, debunk some of the myths. So ChatGPT is as bad as we will portray and as bad as we will use it in, in a bad way for a bad reason. But it can be used for so many nice things. I mean, including managing Naman's uh, emails uh, as well. But I think that um, everything, everything AI is a tool and the way we will use it will determine the way it will impact our lives. And we have a huge responsibility of that. We cannot be complacent. We cannot stay behind or hide our heads in the, you know, in the sand. We have to be really actively engaging with everything AI from any perspective we can, whether we are patients, whether we are educationalists, whether we are students, whether we are um, researchers or academics or clinical practitioners, everything, everyone has, has um, a part and responsibility to get it right. So now, I think for me, the top tip would be that I think the future is AI enabled. And I think everyone needs to travel towards that mindset and address the concerns they have. But I think addressing it is through education. And now with free resources available, I think people can access, learn a little bit more about it and make up their minds for themselves for balancing their risks versus benefits. So I'm very pro. Perfect. Thank you so, so much, everyone. Um, it's been a really interesting discussion and I'm sure the audience would have benefited from your expertise and knowledge around the use of AI. So a huge thank you again to our guests today. Thank you for listening to Rap Chat. Your hosts today have been Nama Joka Anderson and Jay McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Take care and do check out the rest of the AI series. Music